It's a real honor to be with all of you here today, and I just want to open with saying congratulations to the class of 2019. I can already tell from that incredible uh, uh, faith-filled and articulate salutatorian speech uh, uh, how well-educated and how deep you are, not only in uh, uh, the ways of the world, but most importantly, in the ways of faith and in the heart of Jesus Christ. Allow me to share just three decisions with you that I make every single day, a product of my experience of Catholic education, both as a student, also as a professor, and of course as a university president. Uh, they're in stark contrast to the world. Uh, they are the light of Christ in my view, but because of the strength of the popular culture, I have to remind myself of them every single morning when I get up. And I would encourage you to do the same. When I wake up, I encourage myself, I say out loud, today I am going to live for contributive purpose rather than comparative purpose. Today I'm going to look for the good news in the other rather than the bad news in the other. Today, I am going to make the Lord the center of my life and not the world the center of my life. And you might think, well, gee, uh, you're a, a Catholic priest. Don't you kind of do these things instinctively? Do not think for a second that the culture, with all of its devices, from Facebook to Instagram to television to website, do not think that anybody is impervious to the culture. And the message of the culture to put our faith in the world and not in the Lord, all of us need to remind ourselves, even indeed, uh, even Peter Canisius had to remind himself, right? Even St. Ignatius said, make all Jesuits do an eight-day retreat to restore their balance right back to the Lord, to get them out of the culture. Let me just explain these three decisions to you really quickly. The culture, as I said, will tell you that comparative identity is, is sufficient. That being at the top of your game, achieving much, having great status or power, or having great intellect or other great skills and abilities as a leader, that will be sufficient. It'll be sufficient to really be at the top of your game. But it isn't sufficient. And you'll know that it's not sufficient. You'll know that it almost you know, just walls out God. You'll know the minute you begin to ask these questions neurotically, who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power? Who's got less power? Who's got more status? Who's got less status? Who's more popular? Who's less popular? Who's winning? Who's losing? Who's more intelligent? Who's less intelligent? Who's more athletic? Who's less athletic? Who's more beautiful? Who's less beautiful? And you can hear the neurotic tone in my voice getting more intense by the mirror passing the moment. The key thing, of course, is, yeah, there's something wrong with this. It's not the real meaning of life. What the Lord has told us using the word caritas or agape in Greek, right? Uh, we say that love, or what I would call contribution, is really the purpose of life. And the only way of bringing that comparative identity under control is to just stop it and shift our intentional focus. Shift it to what? 
Shift it to this question instead. How will I make an optimal positive difference in this world? First of all, to my family. How will I make an optimal positive difference to my family? How will I make an optimal positive difference to my friends? How am I going to make, with my time, my skills, my talents, my energy, how am I going to make an optimal positive difference to the kingdom of God and to the church? How will I make an optimal positive difference to the community or to the organizations for whom and with whom I work? How am I going to make an, if I'm so lucky, how am I going to make an optimal positive difference to the society or to the culture? Notice that the minute you say these things, the minute you ask these questions, and then put it right at the end of it, for this I came to make an optimal positive difference to family, to friends, to church, to the kingdom of God, to culture, to the organizations and, and community in which I live and for whom I work. All these things, if I put it right there, Notice how the better than, notice how the comparative identity just slips into the background. And when it does, it becomes manageable. It's no longer that I have to worry about achieving more than anybody else. It's no longer that I have to worry about being more popular than anyone else. I'm using my achievements to make an optimal positive difference to family, friends, community, church, uh, church uh, kingdom of God, etc. I, I don't have to be smarter than you as an end in itself. I just use the intellectual talents I have to make an optimal positive difference to the culture, etc., etc. When I do this, you will notice decidedly that any emptiness and alienation that you are feeling within yourself suddenly begins to fill up with a sense of spirit, with a sense of God's presence in our lives. And in addition to that, you will notice something else. As the comparative identity, who's achieving more, who's achieving less, as the comparative level gets more and more intense, you're going to notice jealousy, fear of failure, fear of loss of esteem, ego rage, ego blame, self-pity. You're going to notice inferiority. You're going to notice superiority. You're going to notice contempt and loneliness and depression. And when you get neurotically into that state of depression, inferiority, followed by superiority, etc., etc., you're going to think to yourself, life is really miserable, unhappy, dark, alienating, and lonely. And indeed it is. For this promise that comparative identity can bring it all is nothing more than an insidious and demonic lie. But the minute you start using those other questions, how will I make an optimal positive difference to my family, to my friends, to my church, to the kingdom of God, to the culture, my community, the organizations around me, etc. The minute I do that, and I really make it my identity statement for this I came, you'll notice all of those feelings of emptiness, depression, impulsivity, self-pity, ego rage, ego blame, all of these things begin to subside. And replacing it is not only a spirit of living in the light of Christ, but replacing it is also a very productive life in Christ. You'll not live a better life than after you make those decisions for yourself. And remind yourself every morning, good morning, Spitzer. Today, I'm going to live for the contributive, not for the comparative. I'm going to make the comparative subservient to the contributive, to use the intellectual gifts, to use the, articula uh, the gifts of articulation, to use the, the gifts of status or power, whatever we've been given, 
to make an optimal positive difference to the kingdom of God and to the world in every way that we can. You'll never regret it. You will live a life of sanity, a life toward salvation, and a life that will do immense good. Secondly, every single morning, remind yourself of this. I'm going to make, I'm going to, excuse me, I'm going to look for the good news in others rather than the bad news in others. I think we all know how the bad news is almost a default drive and can literally just jut out right into our consciousness. We see people who are irritating, weak, stupid, and unkind. And then if there are family members or deep friends, we add history to it, lo, these many years. When we do that, you'll notice immediately how the person slips out of a state of transcendent mystery into a mere problem. You'll notice immediately how not only that person becomes a problem, right, when we're looking for what's irritating, weak, stupid, and unkind, right? I mean, it's, they're not only becoming a problem, but the people, the culture around me is becoming a problem. Life's becoming a problem, and I become a problem to myself. The transcendent mystery is gone. The vision of the light of Christ leading us to salvation, leading us to you know, a, a salvation in himself, in perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home, it just subsides. And then everything becomes highly problematic. We're almost like Anna Karenina sitting there in front of the train uh, before she jumps. But if we just simply reverse it, Instead of looking for the bad news in the other, we intentionally look for the good news in the other. We look for the little good things that people try to do, the great good things they aspire to do. We look for their delightful idiosyncrasies, which are the ground of buddydom. We look for, of course, their gratuitous acts of kindness and the fact that they are transcendent mysteries. They are literally transphysical manifestations of a desire for and an awareness of perfect truth, perfect love, perfect goodness, perfect beauty, and perfect being. They're deep sea fish. They're destined for eternity. If we look at people that way, if we look at their unique goodness and lovability, rather than focusing on the irritations, etc., what's irritating and weak and stupid and unkind gets contextualized. I mean, in every walk of life, it's not just true for marriages and, and for family, it's true in our workplaces. If we look for the good news in the other, then empathy is possible. And if empathy is possible, we'll enter into a unity with one another whereby doing the good for, one, for each other is just as easy, if not easier, than doing the good for ourselves. And that perspective alone will bring out that empathy, that love that Jesus is asking of us, that caritas which Jesus is asking of us. If we look for the good news in one another, I assure you this will help your marriages immensely, uh, your future marriages immensely. I assure you of this. <laughs> for all intents and purposes, the bad news will become contextualized. You will have a much greater bonding with other human beings. People will no longer read you as the negative, uh, uh, with their radar, as the, the negative uh, you know, uh, focus coming down the street and people will join in league with you to make a difference for one another that will be utterly productive for your contributive identity from now on in. 
Remind yourself every morning, look for the good news in the other rather than the bad news. Thirdly, when I get up in the morning, I have to say, Spitzer, today I'm going to make God, the Lord, the center of my life. I'm not going to make the world the center of my life. Of course, there's honors and riches and glories that are always going to be tempting. But the point that we must remind ourselves is that the Lord is the center, that we need to live not only for our salvation, but to live to help all the little eternities around us to get to that salvation. Our objective then is to make not only an optimal positive difference in the world, but our optimal positive difference to the kingdom of God. And that, of course, entails great faith. Now, some of you who are analytically minded might be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, if I'm going to live for the Lord, if I'm going to live for salvation, if I'm really going to put this down, if I'm going to deny myself, I'm going to make self, if I'm going to make sacrifices, if I'm going to, you know, put the world in the backseat, if I'm going to say sick transit Gloria Mundi, if I'm going to say, you know, uh, it's transitory, the, the mere, you know, uh, uh, goods and, uh, and values of this world, I just want to be really, really sure. You can be really, really sure. There is no reason for anyone to be in doubt who has an open heart to God. I mean, today, there's more evidence for, uh, for God than ever before in the history of humankind. You want evidence from metaphysical proofs for the existence of God? There's a slug of them. You just take a look at Bernard Lonergan's metaphysical proof. Take a look at uh, Mortimer Adler's metaphysical proof. Take a look at all the Hilbertian mathematical proofs from the beginning of past time. Take a look at, well, lowlifes like myself who write metaphysical proofs for the existence of God. Take a look at them. They're all over the place, and they're really good proofs. And what do they wind up proving? They prove that there's an unconditioned, unrestricted, uh, you know, a totally unique constantly creating, unrestricted act of understanding, understanding itself, which is outside of space-time asymmetry. The creator of all else that is. That's what it'll prove. And it'll prove it in a way, I think, that is quite logically, uh, not just persuasive, but logically rigorous, even in terms of a scientific interpretation of those metaphysical terms. That's what we have around today. But, oh, there's far more than that. If you're scientifically minded, I assure you, there's more evidence for God from contemporary physics today than you can possibly imagine. The board of Lincoln and Guth proof, right, that, that shows that every multiverse, every universe with an average expansion rate greater than zero has to be, you know, have a, a, a beginning, and that beginning necessitates a creator of physical time and physical space. There's also the new entropy evidence that is out there uh, uh, that has been burgeoning since 2001. There's also the new fine-tuning evidence that I've just written extensively about in, in several articles right, uh, that, that's out there that shows the intelligence of the creative force outside of space-time asymmetry. What I'm trying to say is, oh, by the way, if you want details, if you want every single equation, if you want every article with direct links, just go to CredibleCatholic.com. I repeat it one more time. Go to CredibleCatholic.com, click on the big book, and have a field day. <laughs> Prove it for yourself. There's no dearth of evidence. And furthermore, if you want even more than that, 
If you really want to get to the truth of things, God is not just an unrestricted act of understanding, an unrestricted reality that is constantly creating everything that is through its perfect mentative act. God is unconditional love. And we know that with certainty, not only because of, you know, we can maybe infer a platonic transcendental of perfect love in a perfect being, but much more explicitly from Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ came to this earth in an incarnate form, and you might be saying, but I just need to be so true, so, so certain here. I just got to make sure of the truth. I just want to, if I'm going to declare him the way, the truth, and the life, I better be certain. Okay. Uh, I'll, first of all, I, I, I give you this. The, 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 the historical arguments are, are better today, put out by N.T. Wright and so many others. Right? They're better today than they've ever been before. Okay, I'll give you, you know, the Shroud of Turin, once thought to be dated in the 1988 carbon dating. We now know that that's a false uh, carbon date. We now know from four other tests, Fourier transformed, infrared spectroscopy, etc. We know from all these other tests that the Shroud probably goes back to 50 A.D., uh, plus or minus 150 years. And by the way, there are Roman coins on this man's eyes that could only have been minted in 29 A.D. by special minting by Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. Are you kidding me? A medieval forger? Get ready. The Shroud of Turin's got more evidence for the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus than you could ever have thought of. As a matter of fact, we've only been able to replicate this most unique image on this shroud, which is a perfect three-dimensional photographic image on a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth. We've only been able to replicate it by eczema ARF laser in, in a laboratory. Do you know how many eczema ARF lasers would be, uh, would, it would require to transform that non-photographically sensitive linen into a perfect three-dimensional photographically sensitive cloth? It would take 14,000 eczema ARF lasers, more than all the ultraviolet uh, 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 capacity that we have in a laboratory in the world today, just coming out of that dead body. Furthermore, that would be close to six to eight billion, with a B, watts of light energy coming out of that body, and the body has to become a spiritual. It has to become mechanically transparent so that the shroud can penetrate it three sixteenths of an inch in order to get three dimensions, the bones inside the body, proportional, perfectly proportional to the surface of the body itself. Are you kidding me? If anybody here can explain how a dead body can become spiritual, mechanically transparent, and give rise to six to eight billion with a B watts of light energy. That's like having a half a million searchlights coming out of this body in a single one forty billionth of a second pulse. If you can explain this by a physical and natural cause, I need to talk to you because you are the most original person in the world. This requires a supernatural cause of immense proportions. My, my point is this, Jesus Christ is Lord, and now, today, you know, he's giving us scientifically validatable evidence. Do you want more evidence, you know, for the church? Take a look at the, the Lord's Medical Commission, all of the scientifically validated miracles there. Take a look at <clears throat> what's gone on in the canonization of recent saints. Take a look at the Eucharistic miracle that was overseen by Pope Francis in 1998 in, in Buenos Aires. I mean, all these things, by the way, if you want all the details, you want all the equations, you want all the facts, go to CredibleCatholic.com. <laughs> the point I'm trying to get to you is this. 
Jesus Christ has given us more than abundant evidence through miracles, through the Shroud of Turin, through the resurrection evidence that's just emblazoned on that shroud, along with the evidence of, of, of his crucifixion. There's just so much there to contemplate in this wonderful 21st century that's validatable before. You can be sure. And if you are sure that Jesus is risen as he promised, and he's risen in six to eight billion watts of light energy, if you're sure that, this is the, 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 that Jesus Christ has risen this way, why not just simply say it? Jesus Christ is Lord, and therefore he is the way and the truth and the life. So when you get up in the morning, just say to yourself today, I am going to live for the Lord, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my way. He is my truth. He is my life. And, is, and insofar as that is true, I will condition every single thing that the culture tells me in television, Instagram, Facebook. I'm going to stop the insane Facebook profiles to make myself look better. I'm just going to stop it all, and I'm just going to live as, as if Jesus Christ was the Lord in my life this day. I have three things to give to you. The experience and the fruit of my own Catholic education, as well as being involved in it as a professor and a president. Number one, look for the contributive before the comparative, and just pledge yourself to it every morning. I'm going to be contributive today, Spitzer. I'm going to do this before the comparative. I'm going to look for the good news in others before the bad news, and contextualize the bad news with the good news. And finally, I'm going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is my way, my truth, and my life today, and condition everything that the world tells me by his truth and not by the so-called dark truth of our spiritual enemy. If you do that, I assure you of this. Those three pledges every morning will bring you sanity. They'll bring you salvation. They'll bring you protection from your spiritual enemy, the devil they will certainly also bring you sanity. And not only sanity, but tremendously good relationships, tremendously good leadership potential. And in the end of the day, a happy life, not just happy in this world, but happy in the beatific vision with our Lord Jesus Christ and with one another in heaven forever. Thank you so very much, and congratulations again to the class of 2019.